Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Alexander Lahav. We will be discussing the memoir written by his grandfather, Tzvi Kregerson, Memoirs of a Jewish Prisoner of the Gulag which Alexander Lahav, my guest today, edited and translated himself. It has been published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2022. Alexander has lived in Ra'anana, Israel since October 2021. He was born in 1952 in Moscow, USSR. He graduated from Moscow State University in the Department of Mineralogy in 1974. He emigrated to Israel in 1979. He has a PhD in material science from the Technion in Israel, from in, which he earned in 1985. Since then, he has worked in microelectronics in Israel and the USA in the years 1985 to 1990. And between 2007 and 2021, he lived in the United States, residing in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, and Colorado. He currently works part-time in the Nanotechnology Center of Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Presently, he is the chairman of the Tzvi Pregerson Foundation. Tzvi, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for your time and your generosity. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure being with you, Ari. Thank you very much. My pleasure. To begin, uh, can you tell us about yourself and tell us about your grandfather Tzvi, what can you share with us about your life and background? And what can you tell us about Svi's life and background? Okay, so Svi um, um, Pregerson, he died when I was uh, 15. He died in uh, 1969 uh, of heart attack. Um, so I was able to see him quite a bit, um, but we lived separately actually. Um, so I didn't spend too much time with him. Uh, the thing is that um, even though uh, it was much um, past the Stalin uh, Stalin's times, uh, he was still uh, taking caution on, of not uh, uh, how would you say not um, uh, advertising his views, his Zionist views, his uh, knowledge of Hebrew. Uh, so, so inside the family, kept it to his close friends um, that he was able to speak Hebrew with them. And can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, the family was kind of in the dark. So basically, I learned about his uh, literary work uh, only after his death. Um, um, so our family uh, immigrated. All our family immigrated to Israel. And I was the last, actually, one who immigrated. And before 
uh, my departure, um, I had to uh, dispose his uh, literary uh, archive, his um, uh, uh, handwritten uh, notes and uh, material. So, because um, I mean, uh, it was very dangerous to. Uh, even at that time, it's not not very dangerous, but it wasn't very uh, convenient to uh, just to uh, to to uh, keep it. So. So basically, um, what I did, I, I just packed them in few parcels and sent to Israel to my mom, and actually she received them. So, so basically, um, uh, how to say? So, so basically, I learned about his literary activity only um, uh, when we were going to leave to, for Israel, when everything was already open. And prior to that, uh, he kept um, those things kind of secret, even from his family. Now, um, so about Cyprus, and so he was born in uh, 1900 in Ukraine, in a small place in Ukraine. He was very uh, gifted uh, kid. He he studied Hebrew um, at Hebrew school, and um, he he uh, started writing poetry. And one um, his his dad sent his early writings to uh, to a well known. Um, uh, Hebrew uh, poet uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik, who at that time lived in Odessa, and uh, uh, Bialik actually uh, looked at those writings and he replied uh, to to Tzvi's dad that he thinks that um, uh, his son needs um, a proper education, and he suggested to send him uh, to Palestine. At that time, Israel was Palestine. To study at Gymnasia Herzliya, which was one of the first places uh, in Israel where uh, all the uh, teaching was done in Hebrew. So at the age of um, 13, Tzu uh, Pregerson on the ship, the the name of the ship was actually Jerusalem. He he went he he sailed from Odessa to uh, to Yaffa and he spent a year uh, in uh, Palestine in Nazareth where he was able to, uh, to to study proper Hebrew and to get the uh, uh, Sephardic accent because Hebrew was spoken um, mainly with Ashkenazi accent and with Sephardic accent and the Sephardic is the um, basically the version that is now being um, spoken in Israel. Um, so uh, the next summer, um, the uh, World War uh, uh, first uh, started and he went for vacation in uh, to, to his uh, home and he wasn't able to get back uh, to Israel to continue, uh, to, to Palestine to continue his studies because at that time Palestine was under Turkish mandate and um, Turkey was um, uh, against uh, the uh, Russia in this war, so he didn't. He never came back. So uh, he continued his education in Odessa. Odessa at that time was a very, very uh, active place, a very uh, a Jewish place, also a cultural place. So, so he he studied in uh, gymnasium and he. Um, he he studied music there. He he graduated from the conservatory, a music school, 
and he was able to to meet many many famous characters at that time so so that basically was the clue for his uh, um, for his future because he became very much involved in Jewish culture and Jewish music and uh, politics and uh, everything um so, uh, now after the uh, revolution he he decided uh, he wanted to immigrate to Israel but uh, he didn't have any pro profession so he decided to get a speciality so he went to Moscow and he enrolled in the uh, mining um, university to get a profession he thought it, really, it would be a useful profession uh, in Palestine uh, but um, the things changed in, in uh, um, in uh, uh, in uh, Russia and USSR at that time, very quickly Stalin came to power, and uh, all the and very soon all the immigration became impossible. So he he had to stay all his life in Russia. So he became a well-known uh, professor of mining, of uh, coal enrichment, and he worked in um, the uh, university in uh, Moscow. He wrote textbooks which are used uh, by many students in uh, all over Russia maybe even even now maybe some of some of his materials are being used there because he was very well known but that was um, only his uh, kind of uh, facade his his public image um, behind it uh, he was uh, all his time devoted to Hebrew language and to writings he started writing short stories and uh, poem and um, poetry very early and in the early 20s he was able even to publish uh, abroad in Hebrew and there are some uh, like several early publications but then again with the uh, uh, when the Stalinist regime be became very severe he wasn't able to to do it he even uh, Hebrew language was kind of uh, prohibited in Russia because the Yiddish was considered to be the uh, national um, Jewish language in Russia uh, so for some time he he stopped his writings and um, only uh, uh, when he learned about the Holocaust during the uh, uh, Second World War he decided to to resume his writings and then he wrote from uh, uh, 1943 till till his death um, in uh, 1969. Um, so just to to, to make uh, to, to be brief. Um, he uh, when when there was an anti-Semitic, uh, well-known anti-Semitic campaign in uh, uh, during Sta last days, last years of Stalin regime, he, he was arrested like many many other uh, Jewish uh, um, uh, engineers, uh, uh, war, uh, like government officials, uh, 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 writers, uh, whatever. I mean, it was it was a very very serious issue. So he was arrested and he spent almost seven years in Gulag. And basically this book is about his time in Gulag and about the people that he met there. When he was released, he continued writing. So he wrote those memoirs. He wrote the uh, book, um, uh, When the Menorah uh, um, Fades. I think we will be have an opportunity to talk about this book more. And he wrote many short stories um, and some other uh, books. Uh, so, so just to, to continue, so so basically, he was very involved with Jewish life in Russia, and he was able to watch the the, the destroy uh, the, uh, the degradation and the destroyment of the Jewish life uh, before, like all those pogroms um, before the 
revolution and during the civil war, all the suffering of Jews. And then um, when um, in the USSR, when uh, the state politics was against um, uh, Jewish, national, uh, Jewish national interests, so the destruction of Jewish schools, um, Jewish uh, 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 publications, and especially in uh, 1949 and 48, when, when there was a famous anti-Semitic campaign with all, all the Jewish newspapers, magazines, and um, theaters were closed. So he was able to, to, to live through all those times, and he, he was writing about those issues. He, he mainly wrote about Jewish, uh, um, Jewish life in, in, in Russia, in small places, in large cities, and that was basically his main interest. So, so he's kind of a mirror which, which gives to the world the uh, aspects of the Jewish life in, in, in the USSR, because there are not many publications on this issue. And he is probably one of the few ones that wrote on those things. So it's very important historical documents. And also, I think it's it's a pretty good um, uh, quality literature uh, work also. Okay, so <laughs> I finished. Why is the history of the Soviet gulags ignored, unknown, and overlooked in the West? What explains this silence? Okay, so yeah, I'm not a historian, so I, maybe uh, I don't have like a very uh, well-educated opinion on this. But uh, as we all know, the uh, gulags, they were known uh, in abroad, but for some reasons, the, the Western governments, they decided not to push Stalin or, uh, on this issue because it was a war and it was uh, the uh, uh, the Cold War and atomic uh, competition. So so somehow it, uh, Stalin uh, Stalin wasn't very much pressed. Uh, maybe he didn't care what what the West thinks about it because he did many many awful atrocities. I mean besides Gulag, so um, uh, his his um, uh, behavior during the war and even before when we have a, there was a uh, uh, like the Golodomor, the um, uh, death of hunger in Ukraine, and uh, many, many other things. So Gulag was one of those things that West somehow decided not to react. Actually, there was a well-known uh, 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 case. Actually, Solzhenitsyn writes about it in Archipelag Gulag, when the delegation from uh, uh, from Soviet uh, uh, intelligence and uh, Maxim Gorky, a famous Russian uh, Soviet writer, was one of them. They came uh, to one of the Gulag uh, camps. I, I think it was Belomor Canal in the north, and um, uh, and they have seen. They talked to people and they got all the information. But then they decided not to talk about it. And the same with with the Western uh, like. Uh, um, uh, at that time, before there were Western uh, politicians and Western um, uh, intellectuals, when they came to, Ru to Russia, somehow they decided not to talk about it. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that in Russia, those things were forbidden for sure. So we have to to get a, to be very courageous to write about those issues. So so Pregerson actually, when he wrote about it. He wrote it in Hebrew, and he wrote it not to publish. He wrote it. Uh, the, he called it. I wrote. Uh, I write it in, in, to, to be held in my desk. So, but he he still he felt the need to do it. And actually, uh, much later, when Solzhenitsyn smuggled his archipelago to the west, it was in a, uh, uh, like in a, 
uh, I think it was like 68, 69, I don't remember exactly. So it was more than 10 years after Prigazin wrote his memoirs, memoirs when Solzhenitsyn published his, his, uh, his, his works about it. Then, um, I mean, the West got the full picture of all the things that happened. So basically, I think uh, that if somehow Prigazin's uh, writing was um, smuggled to the West after he wrote it, it was it would be greeted with much uh, like uh, higher uh, uh, scales than it is now, I think. But, you know, the time passed, so there's nothing to do. What were your grandfather's fees, primary character virtues? How did they appear in this book? Are there any character virtues of your grandfather's fees that you saw in real life that are not presented in this memoir? Um, so I, there is a, um, there is a uh, memoir of, of, of one of his friends whom he met in Gulag. His name is Alex Khodorkovsky. And he wrote about the Prager. And so it's interesting to read what uh, other, other people thought about him in the camp. So, uh, so Kodorkovsky says that he was like a rebbe. He was the center of the community. People were coming to him to to get some advice, and, and um, he was, he had some authority. So he was able even to interfere with uh, the camp authorities uh, to protect some of the Jewish prisoners. So he was very respected there. He he didn't ask any uh, favors for himself. But he always um, uh, kept uh, company. He always um, um, uh, had uh, some Jewish friends. Uh, and he especially appreciated those uh, people who were able to speak Hebrew. So he, he tried to speak Hebrew to uh, sing uh, uh, Hebrew songs uh, as much as he can. And to... So for him, it was uh, also the kind of survival because um, the life in the camp was not very pleasant. So for him, it was like a separate world that he was able to live in order to protect himself. How did your grandfather's experiences in the Gulag impact the kind of husband he was to his wife and the kind of parent he was to his children? How did your grandfather's experiences in the Gulag impact the kind of grandfather he was to you personally? It's not an easy question to answer. <laughs> um he was very careful after Gulag. He was very careful. He he wanted to protect his family because he he thought that it make all this Jew, persecution of Jews may come back. So he wanted to protect his family. He he wanted uh, his kids to get uh, proper education. For instance, when his daughter, my aunt, uh, when she wanted to choose her profession, he suggested her to become uh, a physician. Because he he told her that if he will some sometime go to Israel, this profession will be very useful there, and that's what happened. When she immigrated to Israel, she became working there as a as a physician. That's one of the examples. So he was very uh, decent, very uh, like uh, um, how would you say? Uh, okay, so 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 he uh, he, he didn't. Uh, I mean, he, he left very very. Uh, uh, simple life, and he, he, but he, he had uh, again, he had like official life at the, at the university and uh, his secret life as a Hebrew writer. And for me, uh, he didn't talk to me about uh, Hebrew, about Israel, about politics, so he tried not, not to involve his family again. So that's probably what, what he has learned from Gulag. 
but he he gave me once a while some books, some interesting books to read. And actually, the profession that I have chosen, the geology, the mineralogy, it's somehow close to what he did. So maybe that was also his influence, but I'm not quite sure, but it is possible. How does your book advance our understanding of Stalin's reign and rule in the Soviet Union? Yeah, it's a, it's a very sad story. I don't know if many people know, but uh, Stalin, during his last years, he he had a he had a plan to uh, to uh, to to basically close to what uh, what Hitler uh, planned with his final solution to to put put end to Jews in in Russia. Um, it started so Stalin uh, died in nineteen uh, in, in March nineteen fifty three, but um, about five years prior to that in nineteen forty eight. He decided to uh, to start um, uh, reducing influence of Jews. Jews were very prominent in Russia, and during the war, there was an anti-fascist communist, which was headed by a well-known actor Solomon Mike Holes. Uh, they collected money, so they went uh, abroad. They went to USA, to to England, to collect money for the war effort, and they were kind of very very well known. And lots of people were talking to them, were writing them. And there was a, like a very, very, uh, very uh, uh, established anti-fascist uh, uh, Jewish anti-fascist committee. So he started with it first. So the Michals was killed by by his uh, uh, order, and um, um, many other members of this committee they were arrested and uh, executed. And then uh, it it like uh, went as a wave. Then uh, all the Jewish publications were shut down in Russia. Uh, the uh, Jewish theater was closed. Um, the uh, uh, Jewish uh, workers, engineers in large factories, they were arrested. The uh, Jewish writers, poets were arrested. And uh, it was um, a kind of um, anti-Semitic campaign, anti-Zionist campaign. Um, so the culmination uh, came um, in uh, 1952, with they call it doctor's plot. So it was, um, uh, I mean, all, all the campaign, it was in the newspapers and radio. Uh, so they um, claimed that uh, Jewish doctors were intentionally uh, uh, poisoning or killing communist uh, uh, functionaries, the uh, important, uh, like, uh, political figures, the industry figures. So so many uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, physicians were arrested, Jewish professors, uh, medical professors and universities were arrested. And um, there was lots of publication publications in the um, uh, in the in the Soviet press about uh, cosmopolitans, about um, uh, Jews who have no allegiance to any country and they are basically uh, traitors. So, so the, uh, I mean, there's not much uh, documents about that left. Maybe there are some in the Russian, uh, in the Soviet uh, or Russian archives, which are not open yet. But, but people uh, uh, think basically that the general uh, situation, that uh, as, as far as I understand, that Stalin was preparing uh, riots in large cities, riots against Jews. They were already. Uh, uh, lists of um, Jews prepared um, 
the uh, uh, citizens of uh, uh, like large cities were promised to get uh, Jews, uh, the, the, the apartments of, of Jews, their um, property and so on. So there was lots of uh, excitement. And, um, and the government, in order to protect Jews from those riots, uh, suggest was uh, was going to suggest to 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 evacuate all the Jews from large cities, uh, and this was going to to happen. I mean, uh, very 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 shortly after his death, and um, um, so already the trains were uh, kind of reserved, and in the uh, far east of uh, Russia. There were some makeshift villages built without uh, any amenities, just the barracks, basically, where the Jews have to be uh, settled. And um, it, they call it a miracle of Purim. So the Purim in, in uh, um, 1953, it basically coincided uh, with um, the, the uh, it was on March 5th, Stalin's death. So they call it a miracle of Purim that saved Russian Jews the same way that it saved Jews in uh, ancient Persia when uh, Malkat Esther um, uh, was able to uh, uh, to reveal the Haman's plans to the king Ahasuerus. So, so it was really a miracle. And um, after after his death, immediately uh, most of the doctors were uh, physicians were released from prisons and uh, and, and um, many Jews were released from the camps. Uh, and basically, I mean, anti-Semitism anti -Semitism in Russia didn't stop, but at least there was not uh, like brutal part of it. Okay, so so Stalin was actually a very mean man, and I think he he was trying to use Jews to relieve um, the stress which he felt was in the country because after the Second World War, uh, Russia put most of the efforts to build the atomic bomb, and um, there was still hunger, there was not much food. People lived in a very, uh, very, very difficult conditions. And in order to uh, to relieve the pressure, Stalin decided to sacrifice the Jews. I think that that was his his idea. And uh, unfortunately, my granddad Ferguson took part in this in this um, uh, in this thing. Yeah. What is unique about this memoir of the Gulags, vis-a-vis -vis other? memoirs of gulag survivors um okay so so this is uh, uh mostly jewish that's why uh, we called the book uh, of a jewish prisoner of gulag so he he also he mentioned many other people and uh, he had many other friends and uh, non-jewish that he writes about but the main stress is about jews so he he was always interested in the life of jewish prisoners and he he talked to them and he supported them and he uh, he wrote about them. So I think the Jewish accent that's uh, for me the the, the main uh, difference. But uh, along with that, he described the life in the prisons um, in the in the different camps that he was. He even um, wrote like the regulations which were there, the way of living about the way of living and about all the. Suffering that um, all the people had there, but I think the, the main, uh, for me, the main stress is, is on the uh, conditions of Jews in, in the camps. What did Zionism mean to Tzvi? How did he perceive the Zionist movement during his youth and early up upbringing? Okay, how yeah, it's, he, it's also how, yeah. How how did his views on Zionism evolve? 
Yeah, it's 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 a good question. So, so in Zionism, uh, there are basically two. There were basically two main streams. So the first streams was like a socialistic. Uh, um, uh, ben Gurion. Uh, so they had those Tadrut, They they started kibbutzim, uh, and uh, they uh, uh, tried uh, to uh, to do everything by negotiations without uh, military. Uh, I mean, when they had, when, when there was no choice, so they had a Ghana, so they, they had to fight, and and uh, eventually it became Israeli army and war and so on. But the second um, stream in, in in the Zionism was was Zev um, Zabotinsky's uh, revisionism. So they were much more aggressive, and uh, they had their Bitar organization in uh, Europe, and so there was a main uh, discuss between those two streams. And I think that the Pregnant belonged to the, uh, they call it socialist. Um, uh, uh, he, he wasn't very fond of Zabotinsky when he was young. And um, basically, uh, and I think he, he, he accepted the principles of uh, socialism, communism. So he was, um, I mean, uh, there, there were just slogans. I mean, the, the, the actual life was different, but the slogans were very nice. So I think he was very much influenced by the slogans that all people are equal, that uh, everybody should do what he can and uh, and get what she need, what he needs. I mean, th- those kind of things. Uh, so so when he was um, uh, discussing those issues with. Uh, with military like Bitar, uh, Zabotinsky uh, people, he wasn't very much convinced. So, but but he respected them, and um, he wrote about uh, those prisoners that belonged to this to the Bitar movement in, in the camp. But he was more, uh, I, I think, more like a Ben Gurion type of uh, Zionist. How did Sri become enchanted with and inspired by the Hebrew language? Uh, okay, so so he so as I mentioned, he learned Hebrew uh, during his early days in Ukraine. He he went to Hebrew school, and then this year that he spent in uh, Palestine in uh, in Nazarethia uh, was very crucial. So so he he wrote that the Hebrew language uh, will stay with him for for his whole life, and he will never abandon it. So he all his life he uh, worked on Hebrew because his uh, Hebrew was because the Hebrew developed in Israel during those years. There were many new uh, words, words, many new uh, uh, things that uh, that uh, Hebrew had to accommodate, and he was kind of detached. So so in every possibility he 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 learned the modern Hebrew to to try to be uh, uh, updated. Um, later, um, uh, when uh, it was possible, he went to the to the central library in Moscow, and they had some Hebrew books and Hebrew publications that they received from Israel. So he was able to read those, and he was regularly listening to the to the Voice of Israel uh, on radio, which was in Hebrew. Uh, so so at night he was um, uh, uh, he was in his study. Uh, he closed the door. Nobody was able to listen. He was listening. He had a short wave. Uh, short wave radio, and he was able to listen to the voice of Israel in Hebrew to to get uh, uh, to get modern English and to know all the news which are in Israel. So he was pretty much updated, even living in Moscow without any connection any connections to Israel. What does your book reveal about ordinary life 
in the Soviet gulags. Um, okay, so uh, so we all know this uh, from the works of Solzhenitsyn, and because he was writing about it very very uh, in details. But Superigerson also he described how they uh, lived in the barracks, about the plank beds, about their uh, code of dress. They had to, uh, they had those numbers sewn to their uh, uh, codes. Uh, about the uh, food ration, about uh, the suffering. I mean, the hunger. He he wrote uh, he wrote a lot about uh, the food issue because that was the most important most important issue at the camp to get food. So about the work conditions, uh, the hard work that people were forced to do. So he was he was writing actually a lot uh, about the uh, uh, the internal lives there, how people. Um, they were getting uh, uh, letters from from home like once a month or whatever the food packages which was a source of survival actually for many of the prisoners uh so he was he was writing a lot about life in in the in the places where he was and it was the first um, hand account so it was very, it's it's very important what role did the bible play in Svi's life um so he again he studied bible at his early ages at school so so he was very much versed in bible and um when he was um, in his writings in his uh, like uh, stories and with in his book when the minor fades he 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 was using lots of expressions from bible so which is very nice because <laughs> Um, one this expression can 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 tell a lot and he 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 used it with with a very good taste he also uh, uh knew lots of psalms and um, uh, so and um, religious uh, songs which he, which he very much appreciated i think uh, he was not religious but i think at the end of his close to the end of his life he started to he started going to the synagogue maybe last maybe five years because at that time especially after the six day war the uh israel became very important in the life of russian jews and the synagogue was a, a natural place to meet so i think he was he was going to the synagogue to meet his friends and to maybe to take part into the services but uh, he was actually never very much religious but he appreciated Bible and he 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 knew it well and he used it in his writings. Can you describe Svi's novel when the menorah fades? What happens in this novel? Um, so so this novel is about uh, the life of Jews in a very small place in Ukraine, which is um, uh, named Haidich. It's in the Poltava region. Um, this place is famous now because um, there on the local cemetery there is a grave of a, of a, one of the founders of the Hasidic uh, movement, um, Schneur Zalman. So right now many uh, of religious uh, or Hasidic uh, Jews from Israel going to Ukraine uh, every year to uh, to be there, and now. I mean, it, it's a well-known place, but at that time it wasn't well-known. So I think um, uh, Tsui um, uh, found about this place by chance when he was um, uh, taking vacation there with his family. And he uh, he got familiar with some of the local families. He spent there maybe two or three summers during his vacation before the war, before the Second World, uh, uh, world War. 
and um, he got close to those people. So when uh, the uh, uh, when uh, when this uh, place, the Haidich town, was occupied by Nazis. Um, uh, most of the Jewish population there perished, they were killed, and um, few, but few people survived. So I think after the war, the Prakerson was able to interview some of them and to, to get the story. And he decided to put everything in writing. So so the story starts with uh, uh, like peaceful uh, summer when his, uh, he and, uh, uh, he is not writing about himself. It's about like fiction character, a student who spends their vacation with the family of his friends. And there is there is some love, some uh, love affairs going on. And it's very nice. It's warm. And there is a nice river there when they're going to swim. And um, then he continues during the years of the, uh, during the uh, time of the uh, Nazi occupation, what happened there. It's very much detailed and very emotional. And um, he um, he also uh, puts um, uh, stress on this, um, uh, 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 the cemetery where the, um, uh, where there's a burning place of uh, of Rav Schneur Zalman, uh, he also uh, puts some uh, Hasidic stories there, which he probably heard from someone there, which are very interesting. So, so I think this book is also of interest to to the to the Hasidic uh, to the Jews because it's it's very uh, kind of reflective. And then uh, there was a miracle because the last, um, uh, like maybe ten people from this place, when the, when the Jews killed everybody else, they were hiding um, in this. Uh, they call it Ohel. That's the, that's the uh, place um, uh, where the uh, uh, the uh, Rav uh, Schneur Zalman was buried. So there was a small building there. So they were hiding there, and they were surrounded by Nazis, and uh, they were going to die. And there was a miracle. So the um, underground uh, tunnel appeared and they were able to get out of there. Uh, so it's kind of a little bit of fantasy, which is kind of very nice because um, some of the people were able to to be uh, to be saved by this. So that's basically the story of the life of um, Jews before the war. Uh, it was all the changes that happened there during the Stalin regime. I mean, they were suffering, and he just he uh, talks about it and anti-Semitism from the local people and the war with, uh, like, I mean, the, the Nazi authority uh, atrocities and some uh, personal stories of people that he interviewed. So, so it's a very strong book. It's it's um, uh, it's uh, I think as a novel, it's um, it has to t- uh, to. Um, uh, I mean, it's written very nice, and it, it, it's one of the, um, how would you say, one of the uh, very interesting uh, pieces of literature by by itself. So yeah, so it's it's his largest book actually. Yeah. Can you describe Svi's letter to Prime Minister David Ben Gurion? Yeah. Okay. So it's a it's kind of a curiosity actually. He, uh, the, uh, he Svi didn't. Uh, write this letter he didn't even uh, knew about it but uh, the story with the letter came uh, during uh, his um, interrogation in when he was already arrested so they uh, there was a group of uh, 
uh, three uh, Jewish uh, writers um, who were close to each other. And um, they, um, uh, they were like meeting as a group uh, in Moscow. So uh, they consisted of uh, Tzvi Plotkin, who was a Jewish writer in Hebrew, um, uh, Meir Bazov, uh, Ishak Kaganov, and Tzvi Prekerson. So there were four of them, actually. And uh, they were meeting, they were talking in Hebrew, they were uh, reading to each other the stories. And then um, uh, the uh, uh, provocator, basically the mole, um, joined their group. Uh, he was uh, basically planted there by the uh, KGB. At that time, it wasn't KGB, it was MGB. But we, we know it like uh, by the name of KGB, like the state uh, uh, security. They planted this person and he was their friend. And he was reporting on their activity very uh, actively. So uh, that was in uh, after the war. And actually in um, uh, 1948, the state of Israel was founded. So there was lots of excitement among Russian Jews because of the state of Israel. So, so this... Uh, 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 provocator, he was able to work on their feelings. So he he suggested them to send some of their writings to Israel, um, and he uh, mentioned that he he will be able to organize uh, sending those works with some of the uh, po Polish Jews who were able to get from uh, Russia at that time uh, outside of um, Russia, outside of USSR, and eventually they came to Israel. So they did. They did it, but uh, his writings and writings of his friends are not political. It was just normal stories, but by itself, it was already a crime to send something abroad. And then uh, uh, this provocator he suggested that they would write a letter to uh, Ben Gurion uh, in support of the uh, Jew young Jewish state, and um, also. Uh, uh, giving some advice about uh, how it should be uh, work, I mean, how, how it should be organized. Uh, and uh, they, uh, basically, he, he, he wasn't taking part in this activity, but one of his friends, uh, I think it was uh, Tzvi Plotkin, he actually uh, wrote this letter, so, but Tzvi Pregerson never knew about it. Uh, so, but in his... Um, uh, interrogation. He was accused about writing this letter, and he was very much upset because he didn't do it. And that was kind of the main accusation that was um, during his interrogation. So, uh, so he writes about uh, this letter uh, in details in his memoirs. But yeah, but actually, it was a false. Uh, in his in his case, it was a false accusation. Um, and actually, uh, nothing what they sent came out of the country. It all went to the to the KGB. So the KGB had full files uh, on him and his friends, and they were arrested as a group. Um, and also, there was an, uh, there was another person, uh, Aaron Kriheli from uh, Tbilisi, who was also uh, somehow uh, put together. So they they, they were like an organization, <laughs> like a, a Zionist organization. And uh, they were accused of uh, of um, uh, uh, working like anti-Soviet activity, uh, connection to the anti-Soviet uh, 
uh, regimes and so on. And um, uh, every one of them got a gulag term. Okay. Who is Sri Plotkin? You have alluded to him. Why is he a person of prominence? Can you explain more about him? Uh, I maybe not, don't know much about him, but he was also a Hebrew writer, and uh, he also started to 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 write in Hebrew in the early twenties, and he was also publishing his works, uh, and uh, he was a very close friend of Zipergerson. They were close before uh, the Gulag time and uh, after Gulag time, and uh, they went to to this. Uh, Heidich place in, U- in um, Ukraine before they were together. I mean, their families, they went together. <laughs> so they they were very close friends. And Tsiplotkin, uh, he was a um, very active Zionist. So he, he was supporting uh, uh, Israel. And he actually organized uh, even the uh, different petitions for, for Israel. And um, uh, and he was—he was—he was just his friend, and he was a Jewish writer. I even don't know what what his profession uh, was. Probably he was also an engineer, but he—he he was a very close friend of Zipregerson. Can you tell us about Itzhak Kahanov? Why is he significant? So Itzhak Kahanov—he also he 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 knew Hebrew, and he was part of this group. He was, I think, he was a musician. He was like a conductor, orchestra conductor, and um, he uh, maybe he was also writing something in Hebrew. Uh, not sure, but uh, he was part of their group. I don't know exactly uh, also much about him, but um, uh, uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So the, yeah. So, Sorry. Um, uh, now, the other person of their group was Mayor Bazov. He was um, he was an engineer and a mathematician, and he he was also a Hebrew writer. And um, uh, they were close with Zipregerson um, uh, in the Gulag. So they were uh, together in uh, I think Karaganda camp, and they were, uh, spent many time, uh, uh, lots of time together, uh, speaking Hebrew. Yeah. So. So they were like friends which were meeting and speaking uh, speak Hebrew. Who is Shmuel Halkin? Why is he noteworthy? Can you tell us about him? Uh, sure. So when the um, pilgrims won his gulag, he was very fortunate to meet very prominent Jewish uh, writers and poets there. And uh, uh, Shmuel Halkin was a Yiddish poet. He was very no- well known, published in, uh, in Yiddish in, in Russia. So he was arrested, and Tzvi was able to talk to him and to support him. Um, uh, another um, Jew, another Yiddish poet was Mordechai Grubian, uh, who worked um, as a medical assistant, and he was um, uh, um, in the camp also with him. And uh, there were other uh, Jewish poets, Yaakov um, Sternberg and um, Yosef Kerler, so, so basically, we wrote about each one of them, uh, Jack Litt, whatever he was able to remember. Yeah, but but uh, as, as I mentioned, during this uh, anti-Semitic uh, campaign, I guess, against uh, ruthless uh, cosmopolites, uh, all the uh, uh, representatives of um, of, Hebrew, of uh, Jewish culture in, in, in Russia were arrested and were behind the bars. 
So he was able to meet some of them. Who is Volotya Kersman? What can you tell us about him and his life? Okay, so so this brings us to, to another uh, very important topic. <clears throat> so, uh, so there was a, a Jewish Zionist group organized by youth in Zmerinka. Zmerinka is a small place in Bessarabia. It's close to the Romania. At some, at some point before 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 USSR took this part of Romania, it belonged to Romania. So they were even not Soviet citizens. They were just taken. By Stalin's regime before the war, when uh, you probably know that in 1939, um, Stalin and Hitler they signed the pact, so they divided some of the um, euro between them. So um, uh, uh, Hitler uh, got half of uh, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, and Stalin was able to get also part of Poland and Bessarabia and the uh, Baltic countries. So that so they they became a part of uh, Russia. And um, those young uh, uh, kids, they some of them during the Nazi occupation, they spent time in ghetto. Um, uh, they were lucky because this ghetto was governed by Rum, Rum, uh, by Romanian uh, basically occupation forces, and they had some uh, uh, some freedom. Uh, uh, so they put Jews in the uh, concentration camps into ghettos, but many of them remained uh, alive after the war. So, so those kids, um, they came uh, from those um, ghettos, and they, um, uh, when uh, the war ended, they went to schools and they uh, studied uh, Russian literature and Russian uh, uh, way of living, uh, as if nothing happened. And for them, it was very strange. So they understood that Jews were special people because the Nazis were after them, and they decided to somehow organize and to uh, to, uh, to to uh, fight for immigration to Israel. So there was this group. It's called Enikite. It's um, in the Yiddish. It's uh, it's um, uh, unity. So there were like many uh, maybe eight uh, uh, members of this group. They started it at, at uh, high school, and um, one of them. Um, uh, Misha Spivak, he, he wrote a book about Zionism, and he was kind of the organizer of this book. But there, but, um, there were many uh, uh, members that, uh, of this group that Tsipergizan met in Gulag, and um, Volodya Kersman was one of them. Uh, Leonid, another another um, was Mayor Gelfand. Mary Gelfand, uh, he became his friend, so he, he was a physician, and he was um, he um, he was uh, friends with Sipergerson until his death, and then he immigrated to Israel and was pretty much well known in Israel. So basically, uh, after uh, when, when the anti-Semitic campaign, all the members of this group, they were arrested and put to camp, uh, even though they didn't do much. I mean, the, the maximum that they did, they were just putting some leaflets about Zionism. So they didn't have any, any plans to... Uh, to do anything uh, like uh, forcefully or anything like that. But there were young kids and uh, uh, most of them um, later immigrated to Israel also. But Sue Pregerson wrote about their organization, about them, about the ghetto, 
about their trials. And it's very nice that we have this documentary uh, evidence about this group because it's, it's a very important, um, I think, uh, episode in um, in the lives of Jews in in, uh, in the USSR. So it's, it's good that your person was able to put it in writing, the story about them. Who are Chaim and Nechama Soltz? What can you tell us about them? What can you tell us yeah. about their daughter, Sarah? Okay, so so um, uh, at the end of his imprisonment in Gulag, Zipregerson was, um, he had, I mean, it was already in uh, 1955, 1956, when after Stalin's death, when rules were already relaxed. So, so for some time he was able uh, even being formally a prisoner, he was able to live outside the camp. And um, he and the Chaim uh, and Nehama Souls, they lived in a, uh, in a, a village which was next to the camp. They, they uh, both of them, uh, I mean, I, I think um, uh, the husband, uh, the Chaim Souls, he spent time in Gulag, but he was already released by then, and his wife came to live with him. And uh, uh, they had a daughter uh, who was living with them. But uh, they were Zionists. They came from uh, from uh, Baltic countries. I think from um, from uh, uh, Vilnius, from uh, Lita, uh, and um, they were, were very very warm uh, Jewish people. And they organized about them a group of um, uh, Jews, Zionistic Jews. So they were meeting very often in their house. It was a very small place, but you no, know, at that time, <laughs> nobody cared. So so it was a place where they were able to talk freely to uh, eat some kosher food, to sing Jewish songs, to celebrate Jewish holidays uh, like uh, Pesach. Uh, uh, and um, for them, it was like a window into the Jewish world. So it was a very, very warm community. So this community numbered maybe, I, I'm not sure, but maybe about 20 people. And they were very much friendly. And Super writes about um, this community, about warm house of Nehama. And Chaim Zolz about their uh, daughter, who um, uh, who was also uh, uh, studying Hebrew. Uh, most of those people, again, after after their release from the camps, they immigrated to Israel. And I personally, I I, I was able to meet Chaim and Nehama Zolz when they were still now now they already passed, but when they were alive, I was able to to uh, to see them and to talk to them. Who is Yechezkel Pularevich? Why is he significant? Yeah, so he he was um, as I mentioned before two uh, movements into uh, in the Zionist uh, 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 field. So so one of them was Zhabotinsky, uh, the uh, more uh, uh, radical movement. So he was a member of Bitar. Bitar was a uh, youth organization of um, of Zhabotinsky revisionist. And he was um, very, uh, I think he was one of the leaders of Bitar in, um, in Vilna, Vilna, it's Vilnius. So they uh, were very active there. They were allowed to have their own clubs, to have their own meetings, to have their like uh, uh, parties and uh, all, all the uh, like activities. They were studying Hebrew, they were studying professions to immigrate. So he was very, already at the time he was, um, he was very, um, uh, active. Uh, when the uh, Soviets came um, in 1939 to to conquer, um, like all the Lat all the uh, um, uh, uh, Lita, 
the he was arrested and he spent many many years in gulag and um the, the Pregerson describes it like this. So when they moved first to Karaganda, Karaganda, uh, it's a city in Kazakhstan. Um, they just moved there in the barracks, which were actually half under the ground. And they were sitting in the plank beds. And he was sitting next to uh, Mayor Bazov. They were together. Mayor Bazov and Aaron Krihele, the three of them. They were speaking Hebrew on the plank beds, and then somebody came to them and started to speak Hebrew with them. And they were very surprised. At first, they were kind of very suspicious, but then they became friends. And uh, that was uh, basically Heskel Pulerevich. And they became friends there. So they were, talk, uh, they were uh, discussing a lot of things, helping each other and speaking Hebrew. Um, they were uh, after they released they kept in touch in uh, moscow uh, so he was especially uh, polarich was one of his friends and he uh, immigrated to israel when he was allowed and he became one of the leaders of the uh, of the um, uh, of the organization of the uh, jews from russia and israel of the uh, those who suffered in gulag so he he is well known in israel now now he's already past but but he 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 is a well-known uh he, he wrote also his uh, memoirs and published them who is kostia armenetov um kostia armenetov i think uh, he wasn't jewish he was uh, uh he was one of the his f friends that he met during uh, his when he was moved from one prison to another i think he, he met him uh, during the transfer and he, they became friendly and um, I mean, so um, he would just mention about him. I don't think there is anything special that I can uh, say about him. He didn't meet him after that, uh, but yeah, but he he also wrote about many of his acquaintances, which are not Jewish, that he that he met in the barracks, in the uh, transfers uh, during his work because he was working there. So he he was able to to describe those people also. What can you tell us about Rabbi Mordechai Shenkar? Can okay. you describe his biography? Sure, yeah, that's a very special story. Um, that's basically the chapter that I like the most in the book because it's very touching. So Mordechai Shenkar, he was um, the uh, economist. He uh, he lived in, uh, in one of the small places in Ukraine and he was working there, but he was very religious. And um, I think... Uh, he uh, uh, he kept um, close ties with the local synagogue and with the local uh, Jews. And at that time, uh, immediately after World War II, uh, some of the Jews wanted to, to, to leave Russia just to escape. And at that time, it was possible because there was no formal border. And uh, so he was able to, to organize their... Uh, uh, to help to to when they when they're coming through because his place was very close to the border so when they came there he was able to host them and to help them to to get further so he was arrested and um, uh, they met um, in the uh, Vorkuta uh, uh, camp Vorkuta is in the very very far north it's um, north of the North Circle actually so it's very cold there the uh, in the winter, there's no light, so it's almost dark all the time. 
the summer is very is very uh, short and the conditions are very very bad and Reb Mordechai he he wanted to keep uh, his um, religious way of living there which it was a heroic basically thing so he was eating only kosher food he was praying uh, three times a day and um, he didn't uh, uh, work on 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 Sabbath on Saturday, and it was really very difficult. So the president describes how he was able to achieve it, and um, also uh, he wrote that reporter I was supporting um, his Jewish friends. He was collecting some money to give those who need to to collect food to support those who were uh, in hunger. Um, he so so he was kind of the president sees him like as a hero uh, who was able to uh, sacrifice everything for his religious uh, convictions and for his religious uh, way of living. For instance, one of the example is that uh, he had to to uh, to pray um, uh, three times a day and uh, in the evening when it was like uh, very cold outside, so it was extremely cold. He cannot pray in the barracks because it wasn't allowed. So he was getting outside and on the cold he was standing and praying. And uh, the person suggested him, maybe you can just walk and pray. No, it's not allowed. So he, even though it was very cold, it was freezing to death, he was standing in one, one place until the, the prayer was over. And um, uh, the one thing that Pregerson, uh, uh, like, that was very touching. So it, actually, it was the same day. It was a Purim holiday of 1953, the day that Stalin died. So it was like the very uh, critical point of this anti-Semitic campaign. And, and even in the camps, they knew about it because the new people were coming, telling them, and they probably were able to get some uh, Soviet newspapers there on the radio. So they knew about the anti-Semitic campaign and they were very worried about Jews. So, so when they were celebrating this uh, Purim holiday, it was still very cold. In March there, it's like uh, still still uh, middle of the winter. <coughs> so, uh, they were praying together for the life of the Jews, and and they um, uh, the reporter had told them that this um, uh, past and present Hamans Hamans was like a bad guy, uh, and he he mentioned Stalin by this that they will pass over and the Jewish people will survive. And actually, he, he was right. <laughs> so it was very, very touching for me. And um, I know that after his release from the camp, Rob Mordechai immigrated to Israel. <coughs> I didn't meet him, but my mother, she was able to to meet to meet him several times. So he, he lived in Israel. So uh, many, many of um, uh, uh, of um, uh, friends of Tsipergerson, and they will to immigrate. Unfortunately, Tsipergerson wasn't one of them. Who is Terenti Speridonovich? That's basically a joke. <laughs> so it was uh, about the life of uh, prisoners in Gulag. So so they worked in um, in the like in, in uh, kind of uh, office. Uh, in the uh, coal um, mining uh, 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 factory, and it was very dirty, and uh, uh, people were doing dull work there. So, in order to to make some fun, they found some mice, and uh, they put them in the box, and they uh, kept this box on on top of one of the cabinets, and they were feeding them, 
and watching them. I mean, it was one of the one of the amusements that, that we were able to uh, to to do during the uh, during their uh, uh, stay there. So Terenti Spiridonovich was the name of one of the mouse, actually. <laughs> And Tsiperizna writes about them. There are some, some, uh, he has lots of jokes. So there is, it's, it was one of the jokes there about, about this mouse. <laughs> what can you tell us about the relationship between your grandfather and other members of your family before you were born? So he was um, the main uh, uh, person who, who was working. So he basically, because his wife, um, she she didn't work at that time. Uh, yeah, she started to when he was arrested. She she became working a little bit, but before that she, she was just staying with the kids. So he was supporting the family. He was um, a very decent man. Um, he uh, he he uh, was caring a lot about education of his kids. So it was very important to him. Uh, he he was very uh, well versed in literature, uh, so he was uh, he he made sure that his kids also read a lot and um, and they uh, um, they are like will um, uh, well educated. Um, um, so my my mother she wrote uh, her uh, memoirs about Superman, so there is a book about that. And um, I just looked into it, and one of the things that she writes there, so uh, in um, 1948, when um, the, the Jewish theater in Moscow was going to be closed, they already knew about it. He took her and her sister to the theater, and he told them, uh, so they went to the, to the Jewish performance, which they didn't speak uh, Yiddish. So 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 Tsiperizan did. So he 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 was able to understand, but the kids not. But he still took them there, and he told them that, okay, make notes that maybe one of the last times that you can hear Yiddish uh, in Moscow because the, the theater was going to be closed. So even though he he didn't talk to them politics, but he was able somehow to to uh, to connect them with uh, Jewish way uh, Jewish. Uh, culture and to uh, but he didn't want to make uh, his family to to put them in any danger I mean political danger because now at that time in Russia everybody was uh, very suspicious and uh, people were writing uh, 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 like letters to KGB about their neighbors to in order to get their apartment and so on so in, in, in the work it was also very dangerous to to say even one word. So he was very careful, but still, I, I think he was able to uh, to give their uh, his kids uh, some uh, idea about uh, about Jewish culture. Can you tell us about Zaev Jabotinsky as he appears in this memoir? Okay, so so actually, um, uh, uh, so there is another character by name Jabotinsky, which has nothing to do with Zaev Jabotinsky, but Zaev Jabotinsky was a well known. Zionist uh, leader, and again uh, he was um, uh, a leader of this Beitar organization. That some of the uh, uh, Jewish prisoners belong to this organization, and Tsipriegazon had many discussions with them regarding the Zionist politics and so on. So I think that's uh, that's how the Zevs uh, Batinsky came into this book because um, Tsipriegazon uh, uh, was. Uh, 
uh, friends with uh, some of his followers. Can you tell us about some of the gulags and prisons that were experienced by Tzvi? There are many that are described. To the extent of your knowledge, how did he cope with his ordeals in these prisons and gulags? What conditions proved to be too much for him? Can you share something about how he was changed by his experiences in the gulags? In what ways was he a different person, your grandfather Tzvi, after his experiences in the gulags relative to the person he was before he was in the gulags? So again, uh, I don't have any first-hand uh, uh, knowledge about this, but uh, everything I know is about what I heard about him and, and from this book. Actually, I have learned mm-hmm. most of my information from this book when I was translating it. So mm-hmm. so he, when he was first arrested, he he was um, held in two prisons in Moscow. One is Elifortovo prison and the second one was Butyrka prison. And then he he was transferred to the Gulag uh, prison uh, camp. So first he was he spent some time in um, Kazakhstan uh, in um, the uh, in the uh, Karaganda. That's uh, the city in Kazakhstan, which is basically it's uh, in the south of um, of uh, Siberia. Let's put it this way. And then he was transferred to other three camps in the north, north in the Komi Republic. So it was Abes, um, <clears throat> Inta, and uh, Vorkuta. Vorkuta, as I mentioned before, it's it's a very far north. So it's it's uh, north of the North Circle. Uh, so each each place was different, and the times were different also because towards the end of his imprisonment, uh, many of the regulations already were relaxed. But uh, at the beginning, it was very, very hard. So yeah, the food was very limited. They had to work hard. There were lots of regulations. Uh, the hardest times that Tsipirizan uh, had basically was during his interrogation. That was in the uh, Lefortovo prison in Moscow. So his um, uh, interrogator, he was a very brutal man who was beating him. And uh, he was... Uh, uh, preventing him from sleep because um, their meetings uh, were held during the night. So the president writes that like um, uh, like about half an hour when they went to sleep, he was woken up by the guard. So he, he wasn't even able to sleep a little bit. So he was taken to the interrogation and he stayed there whole whole night without able to sleep. And he was brought back to his cell in the uh, morning, maybe half an hour before before the uh, before the wake up call, so he 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 spent many many weeks and uh, maybe months without proper sleep. Uh, he was beaten and he was uh, he 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 spent some time in uh, basically a carcer in the solitary <coughs> punishment cell, and he his health was deteriorating and it was very difficult for him. So, uh, so the question was whether he would uh, sign and confirm all the accusations that they put um, in the uh, in the protocols in the uh, interrogation protocols, and most of them um, were lies basically, and um, 
so Pregerson, he first he tried to to refuse not to sign those, not to, not to admit any crime because he was, actually he didn't commit any crime in our normal uh, normal uh, kind of uh, what what we understand as a normal life. But in Soviet Union, even a small thing, even even a glance, even a smile may be considered as a, as offense. So so as an independent person, he was probably guilty already. But nevertheless, they had to to put together some plot. Some so they uh, they made this group of his friends that they had the, like like a Zionist organization, and they uh, documented their uh, meetings, their uh, discussions, their uh, whatever things that were incriminating every one of them. And everything has to be like uh, put together uh, very neatly as, as one document. And every one of them had to sign um, uh, his accusations part. And Sri Pregerson, first he refused, but then he, he didn't have any strength to, to refuse, especially when his interrogator, he started threatening him <coughs> to, to arrest his family, his daughters, his son. Uh, and the um, president, that time, the president decided that proper proper for him to to sign it and, and uh, just to get over with it. This issue of letter to Ben Gurion was the critical one because that was the most serious accusation, and the president didn't want to admit it, and that was his hardest suffering when he was interrogated about it. Eventually, he signed it also, and um, at some point, he thought that maybe he can uh, talk to the. Uh, prosecutor who who was uh, who who uh, Russia they had uh, they had some laws so so uh, before his trial he was uh, he was um, he had to meet a prosecutor who who had to confirm that everything was done according to the rules and so on but it didn't help him basically he was convicted in his absence absence um, so there was a famous troika there were three people that were making the the, uh, the uh, conviction. Uh, and um, probably it, it took about uh, five seconds to, to make a decision because everybody, everything was already decided. Everybody got 10 years in prison. So basically, some people who understood this kind of machine that was working there, they just uh, uh, took decision not to fight. So they just signed everything. They got the same, like 10 years in, <laughs> in the prison camp, but then they just spared, spared their... Uh, the suffering. So that's probably most, maybe it was a, the best thing to do because many people died there because many people refused to sign the accusation and they were just were killed there. I mean, so in this respect, the president was lucky. He was able to survive. But this interrogation was very, very, very difficult for him because he had to, to, to basically to, uh, to, uh, to make a change from a normal like uh, person who lived in the city and worked at the university to became a convicted prisoner. Uh, so it was it, it was a very, very big change for him, I think. Even though he knew that he was um, uh, he was innocent. Can you comment on the social and physical geography of the Arctic as it may be learned from the descriptions in your book? What do the gulags, as they appear in Svi's memoir, teach us and show us about the Russian Arctic? Um, so so basically, I mean, um, 
I have uh, did some research on the internet and the Gulag there was a very, very uh, large network of the camps all over Soviet Union, um, mostly in, in the Siberia forest, in the um, uh, Magadan area, in the uh, Arctic area, because um, the, the Soviet government, um, they, they needed coal, they needed gold, they needed metals. And uh, the regular people uh, were not enough. I mean, they had to be paid, and um, they uh, there were some rules. So, so they used basically prisoners to do those uh, uh, this very hard, dirty work. And prisoners they didn't have to to pay them, uh, just feed them a little bit, so they, they would uh, they were able to work. And even if they would die, I mean, they wouldn't care because they will just bring new ones. So, so each um, months, uh, uh, a certain like amount of people were arrested. I think it was just uh, like a machine. So they were arresting people to send them to to hard to do hard work in the coal mines, <clears throat> in the gold mines, in the uh, cold and uh, whatever uh, very unbearable conditions. And they don't care if people would die there. Um, so so a huge network. So Tsipirikin was like in four places in this huge network. And so one of them was again in Kazakhstan, which was the south of Siberia. The conditions there were, were not so cold, even in winter. Uh, but then uh, he he was transferred to the far north. And those three places, Inta, Abbas, and Vorkuta, <coughs> they all uh, in the far north, north of um, Russia, in the Komi Republic. <clears throat> and uh, again, the Temperatures there are uh, extremely low in winter, and um, it's a person writes that uh, it was always dark there. It was like uh, uh, haze, no sun, and uh, uh, very, very uh, like difficult uh, atmosphere. But Tsipirikzin was lucky, as I mentioned, because he his time in Gulag was during the last years of the Gulag system. It was dismantled uh, with his release in, um, I, I think, in 1956, 57, probably was the last uh, camps, because when Khrushchev came to power, he decided to stop this <coughs> practice. So uh, by the end of the uh, of the Gulag system, the, the rules were very much relaxed. They even got some, some money. They, they got salaries already in the last years of the imprisonment. And they got more food. They they even uh, got some culture activities. So they had some uh, clubs. So they were shown some movies, and they had some prisoner actors um, uh, uh, setting up performances. So it wasn't that bad. They even had the uh, soccer uh, competition during the summer. So it like it sounds like a, like a camp, but it wasn't the camp. So they still had to work and to suffer. But at least at the, at the end, the conditions were released. So, but but before that, uh, especially uh, during the war, uh, that was unbearable because the war put very uh, strong like uh, uh, I would say the suffering on all all on all Soviet Union and especially in the camps. So. The prisoners in the Gulag camps, they had to work and uh, they were just dying uh, like soldiers on, on the on the front because uh, nobody took care of them. It, uh, there were no rules, no 
legal system. And um, yeah, it was probably the worst time during the war. But surprisingly, again, was arrested. Uh, he, he get into Gulag in uh, 1949, which is much later. And at that time, there were already some rules and regulations, and he was able to survive. <clears throat> Can you provide more detail about the Karaganda camp? What were conditions like there? So, so when uh, they arrived with a transfer from Moscow, uh, by the way, the transfer itself, it, it was very long, and uh, Tsui Pregerson writes about those Talipin carriages. Uh, that was the railway, railway carriages which were built for prisoners. Um, and uh, Solzhenitsyn writes about it also a lot. I mean, so uh, so the conditions are unbearable. They were packed there uh, like um, uh, very very densely. Uh, people were not able to to move there. They were all together. The food was limited. They didn't them enough drink. They fed their salt uh, fish, which basically increased their thirst. And um, the uh, in order to get uh, to the to the to the restroom, uh, it was a real suffering. He he writes that um, uh, that each each person had like less than a minute to get in and out of the restroom, and and he was very sensitive, so he wasn't able to do anything during this time, and he already shelled out of it. So uh, so it was it was very very tough. So when he arrived to Karaganda, they were put in into the barracks which were um, previously occupied by uh, Japanese prisoners of war that were at that time moved probably probably they had some agreement with Japan to release those prisoners so they were taking their places it was it was it was just um, uh, 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 simple barracks with plank beds and um, they had to find some uh, some means of to warm to warm themselves, like the uh, blankets and so on. Uh, so the, at that time, the, the, there was still hunger, so the food was was rare. The prison was lucky because uh, uh, there was a medical commission, and at that time he was very sick. He had had an ulcer and also had some. Uh, some uh, heart issues so he was uh, given at that time he was 49 he was not uh, by our standards he was not very old but then it was <laughs> very kind of uh, uh, serious age so he was able to get the status of an uh, 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 invalid like uh, so he was released from work uh, and uh, that that saved him because he was staying uh, in the barracks during the work hours and he even was able uh, to do some scientific work there because he told uh, the uh, camp authorities that he was an engineer and a professor and they gave him possibility to do some uh, drawing to to do some calculations and he assembled a group of experts around him and they even wrote a patent there i mean they applied for a patent it was able to they were able to do it they sent those documents to moscow and later like maybe uh four or five years later they were granted a patent for this uh, work so so he was always able to to find for him uh, uh the conditions so he to survive i mean that was um, and again he 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 was he made friends there with um, uh Many people, most of them Jews, and he was able to to be in the community of Jews to 
uh, to speak Hebrew, to sing uh, Jewish uh, songs in Psalms. Um, so if I may, <coughs> the those songs were very important to him. In order to keep his sanity, he called uh, uh, those songs my uh, my morning prayer. So he was thinking, uh, he, he, he assembled maybe more than a hundred songs. Some of them he knew before and some of them he learned from his friends in, uh, in the camps. So those songs were in the Yiddish and Hebrew melodies. And um, there were some melodies that he even uh, put, put words on some of them by himself. And he remembered all those songs and he was uh, he subdivided them into uh, several songs for each day of the week. And he was singing them regularly. So it helped him to, to survive, to, uh, uh, to, to keep his mind and to, to be close to the uh, Hebrew, to Jewish uh, culture and so on. So he was, uh, that was his means of survival there just singing Jewish songs, Hebrew songs. Can you tell us about Le Lefortovo prison? What were conditions like there? What were the cells like there? Um, so Lefortovo, again, that was the first prison that he, he was put into. Um, so uh, he, for, for, for him, it was a very uh, new experience. Uh, he spent most of the time in the one in the one single cell with um, people who stayed there for a long time so he describes uh, those people that he spent time with it was a very very uh, well organized uh, kind of uh, uh, life there so they had <clears throat> wake up call at, at certain time in the morning they were given food regularly there uh, they had uh, like an hour <clears throat> every day for a walk outside each um, one day a week they had like the uh to they, they were taken to take shower they were given a small, a small piece of soap very small piece just one time and um, uh, they uh, were able to to purchase some food in the local store um, so they had some money some budget that they were able to use for purchases um so one of the things, interesting things, is they were not allowed to communicate with other cells. So a way of communicating, so the, the walls were very thick, so the only way to communicate was to, to knock at the wall. So there were some <clears throat> experts in this communication. It was very slow because they didn't get, uh, they didn't uh, use the Morse uh, like code. So what they did, so there are like three letters in the Russian alphabet. So they put like a count. So the first letter A is one knock, B is two knocks, uh, C is three knocks and so on. So it was very slowly. So each time they had to, to knock a certain number of times and the other side of the, of the wall, they had to count them and then to put those letters in words and in sentences, but still they do it. So one time Tsipiridison uh, was caught doing this knocking by the guard and he was um, uh, severely punished. He was uh, sent to the to the solitary cell um, in the basement. Uh, there he was. He was stripped out of his clothes. It was very cold there, and he stayed there like for three days in, in solitary cell. It was a punishment for knocking on the wall. Um, yeah. So, but also he writes about the support that he got from his uh, his um, mates in the cell. 
uh, after uh, after beatings that he experienced during the interrogation, he was brought to the cell with blood and all beaten, and the, his mates in the cell they were taking care of him. They were uh, <clears throat> helping uh, him to get on, onto the plank bed, and they were listening to him and giving him some advice. And uh, so it was a very important support for him from his from his uh, cellmates. What were conditions like in the Butyrka? Prison. Okay, so Butyrka was a second prison. Um, that uh, so so when he uh, when he signed uh, those protocols of interrogation, when the, his interrogation was over, he was moved to this Butyrka prison. There, the conditions were, were more relaxed because um, so the cells were large. So there were like maybe several, uh, maybe 20, 30, 40 people in the cell, large cells. So people were able to communicate. They didn't have. Uh, uh, I mean, they were able to uh, uh, to read books and to uh, so it, it was it was a different atmosphere there. And uh, in Butyrka prison, he was given his sentence. Uh, and uh, from this um, uh, Butyrka prison, he was um, he was taken to the to the transfer uh, by railway. It's interesting that in the Butyrka prison, it's like like the uh, <clears throat> castle, like like the like a, it's a large territory, and inside it there is a church, which was actually a church. It was built as a church, but this church was was um, uh, turned into the prison also. So the, that's what they uh, call it the church cell there. And I, I looked at the internet and that's correct. That there is a church cell in the Butulka prison. It's it's very, very uh, funny. <laughs> Can you describe the capital Naya coal mine to our listeners? Uh, can, uh, sorry, can you can you repeat it? Can you describe the capital Naya coal mine? Ah, the coal mine. Uh, so yeah, uh, basically all I know is from Zipregerson. So it was a large mine. Uh, people were working um, uh, underneath the ground in the very difficult conditions. There were lots of uh, casualties there. People were dying there. And they were basically producing the coal um, uh, by hand. I mean, there was not much, not many machines there. So it was very hard work. And um, uh, I mean, the, the, the most respected people uh, in in the gulag, were those who were doing hard work, like uh, in in the underground. Uh, <clears throat> so Tzvi never had this experience because he was already like at the age, and he was part time. He was considered um, uh, a disabled person. Um, but he describes uh, people that he, that were working there, and uh, it was very very hard work and very dangerous work. Uh, maybe it's a good time to tell. So, so the doctors, um, uh, uh, there were prisoner doctors who were in the Gulag. Um, so, one of their uh, tasks uh, were to uh, to to uh, to get um, relief from the work to to the prisoners who were sick. So, so, so to have a good relations with the local like prisoner doctor was very important. And Zipregerson um, was able to use it also. He, he spent some time in the hospital there. And also for his friends, especially those who were doing hard work in the, in the coal mine, he was able to, to get them uh, medical permission to stay at the hospital, to relax, to, 
to eat something um, to get out of this uh, circle of hard work because their people didn't last long. I mean, they probably were injured uh, I mean, from the hard work. Uh, so it was it was unbearable, basically. Can you tell us about the songs that Sfi collected and sang? Yeah, so I mentioned already about it. Um, so he <clears throat> he collected this, the Hebrew and uh, Jewish songs. Some of them he knew from his uh, youth, and um, some of them he learned from his uh, fellow prisoners. And um, uh, some of them were religious um, songs, like um, the Song of Songs, like uh, that King David uh, allegedly wrote, uh, Song of uh, Accents, uh, um, and he knew he he was he had a musical uh, ear like a ear for music. Actually, during his time in Odessa, when he was studying there, he he studied in the uh, musical conservatory. He was playing violin, so he was very very uh, sensitive to music, and um, uh, he was able to to think those songs. And he also some of his friends were good singers. So he was always asking them to to perform to 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 sing him some songs uh, in uh, Jewish Jewish songs. So for him it was a very important part of life. And as I mentioned, he called them his morning prayers. That was the means of his survival to just to be immersed in, in the music and the songs. It allowed him to to run away from the harsh reality of the camp, I think, and and to keep his sanity and to keep his uh, Jewish identity and to. Um, communicate with his fellow prisoners. So it was a very, very important part of his life in the camp. Can you say more about the forms of torture and in, that Sviyan experienced? What forms of torture did he go through during different experiences of interrogation? Okay, so again, as I mentioned, so he had um, he was beaten and was uh, uh, during his interrogation um, also, it was a moral issue because his um, interrogator he he used to call him by all kinds of names and uh, and um, uh, was trying to frighten him by by by, by different means. Uh, uh, so that was probably, as I mentioned, it was the hardest part of his uh, during his stay in the prison. It was during the interrogation. Uh, in the camp itself, uh, if you follow the rules, I mean, typically you won't get beaten. I mean, but if um, uh, if somebody would uh, caught you of doing something which is not uh, allowed, then in the camp there were also uh, beatings and uh, uh, and um, solitary confinements. Uh, an example, one of the examples that Sri Prabhupada uh, puts in the book. Uh, so there was an evening roll call where all the prisoners were like counted, and then they were able, to, they were required to to go into the barracks and stay there during the night. And um, uh, initially, I mean, it was in Vorkuta camp. Those rules were not followed, so people, prisoners, were able to stay outside even after the roll call for a few few minutes or maybe a, uh, half an hour to talk to each other, communicate. But uh, one day they decided to enforce this rule, and three prayers and, and two of his friends were caught outside after the roll, evening roll call. So they were put into the uh, 
into the prison cell and uh, very very funny thing happened there so they uh, they had only one uh, bucket uh, to uh, to urinate and whatever for three of them in a very small place and somehow uh, it was it was there was no light so it was dark there was three together somehow they managed to uh, to turn it over <laughs> on them and, and on the floor so and it was full basically so so it was very unbearable because they were all uh, covered with this uh, stuff so so for a long time they were trying to call for a guard to to open the the door and eventually the guard opened the door and he gave uh, them some means of uh, to clean the cell and the person he 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 writes about it with the humor that <coughs> that he is a uh, like a professor of science was uh, had to uh, to, uh, to to went on his knees uh, and to start uh, wiping all this uh, he called it uh, 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 uh gold like <laughs> the uh, uh yellow gold stuff from the floor um uh, and eventually they they did all three of them they they, they worked together they cleaned the cell and they stayed there after that I mean, it was a little bit funny but that's a kind of punishment that he experienced wow what rules were imposed on prisoners did common criminals have to follow different rules than political and religious prisoners. Yeah, so so <clears throat> that's a very important issue. So so basically, there were two types of prisoners. There were political prisoners and common and common uh, uh, prisoners like common thieves. Uh, the political prisoners, most of them were innocent. They had this this famous um, uh, Article Fifty Eight, and um, I mean. Huge majority of them, uh, they were innocent. They were, they were just put there for uh, for their uh, political views, or maybe just without any reason at all. Now the uh, the common criminals, they were criminals. They were murderers, uh, thieves, robbers, whatever. And um, they, uh, by by the Soviet authorities, they were considered as a friends, as a friendly element, because. They were part of the proletariat, so they were not traitors. They were just uh, uh, people that uh, committed crimes, but they were part of the people. The political prisoners were enemies, actually. <clears throat> so the uh, relation uh, of the camp authorities to those two groups of people were different. Now, also the common criminals, they have their own code. Their code, I mean, uh, that's what the person writes about it. I mean, it's, it's also well known, but the person uh, writes a lot about it. So their code basically prevented them uh, from uh, communicating with the prison authorities. They were forbidden to do work, and they were forbidden to, <clears throat> to follow the prison rules. And basically, because they were kind of friends, they were, they were part of the proletariat, the prison authorities they didn't push them very hard. So they allowed them not to go to work, and to have their own rules, um, whereas the political prisoners uh, were uh, very, very much uh, kept uh, like under uh, uh, under more strict rules. And um, in the beginning, uh, there were very, lots of tension between the political prisoners and the common criminals. Um, so, so in some places they were separated. So there were special camps for 
common criminals and special camps from political ones. So by doing this, um, the life was quieter. There were less uh, accidents, less murders, less um, um, uh, less, less crimes in the camps. Uh, I mean political camps. And people were able to organize there and to spend time together without any fear of being corrupt or being uh, beaten or so on by, by common criminals. <clears throat> now, towards, um, now, during um, his transfers from one camp to another, he was able to, con to, to meet them and uh, he was able to see uh, how they behave. He uh, describes... Um, Barak 18, so it was in one of the camps, uh, uh, transfer camps, uh, when he just arrived and they had to spend some time there. So this camp was half uh, common criminals, half political prisoners, and uh, the uh, common criminals, they ruled there. So the one guy, uh, young guy, uh, young Sif, whose name was Volodya, he was in charge. And each time a new group of political prisoners was um, brought there, they brought their stuff with them, their uh, probably uh, kit bags, their uh, suitcases, their uh, belongings. So they had this ritual. So uh, during the night, uh, the light that was there was uh, some, somehow shut down and the, uh, the new coming political prisoners were robbed in the darkness, beaten, and um, their belongings were smuggled outside through the broken window. And then after half an hour, everything was normal. And uh, they were not able to find any of the stolen goods because there was a network. And, uh, and uh, the previous one thinks that the camp authorities were part of this, uh, uh, part of this operation. They, they had some, some portion of the stolen goods. And that's how it worked. So, so, so newcoming people were... Uh, were uh, left without their clothes, without their shoes, even the warm shoes, without all their belongings. It was very awful. And he, in many parts of his book, he he uh, describes the, the relations with the, the common criminals and the political prisoners. Especially, it became more uh, relevant um, during the last day, during the last years, when the uh, regulations were softened and uh, many of the. <clears throat> political prisoners were started to being released. So their place in, in, in the camp, in the in the mines, in the work were replaced by the uh, common criminals. So it was very difficult for them. So it was a real issue. And uh, it's it's a very, very interesting issue. There are lots of funny stories about it. And uh, I mean, because the common criminals, they had their own codes, their own language, their own rules. And it's kind of interesting. If you're not a part of it, it's, it's interesting to, to read about it. Can you tell us about Barracks 11? What's unique and notable about Barracks 11? I think it was um, a mixed barrack also, and uh, the person had to stay there for some time. And uh, it was... Um, uh, it was it was difficult to uh, to, to be there because he, he had some belongings. I mean, most of his belongings he was... Uh, he held in the storage because storage was guarded. But the things that uh, were left there when he went to work, um, they were mostly stolen. I mean, he was uh, he was um, uh, sub subjected to the rude language and to the rude jokes, anti-Semitic jokes and so on, uh, jokes. Uh, so it was difficult for him. So at some point he managed to 
to move to be moved out of this barracks to uh, to the barracks which was mostly political prisoners i think who is mustafa adali why is he significant okay so mustafa adali was the first person whom the prison met in the leforto prison when he was just arrested it was a turkish um, guy who uh, who told him his story so he he was part of the uh, delegation um, I, I think he was like a, a soldier or something like that who came to Russia from Turkey with uh, with a government delegation and he left Russia and he stayed there so he was working as a uh, driver in the embassies he was a simple guy and he enjoyed life in Russia so he uh, even married a Russian uh, uh, Russian woman and he even had a child but he since he was connected to the embassy he was able to get better food and better conditions um, and, and then at some point he was arrested and accused of being a spy a Turkish spy and um, the spent time with him in um, the Leforto prison so so basically Mustafa Adali he introduced the person to the to the way of living in the in the prison he explained him the rules and he was able to support him and they even uh, sung some songs to uh, were able to sing some songs together some turkish songs so yeah so Tsipergerson actually writes very warmly about him what does this book teach us about friendship who were Tsvi's friends in the gulags can you describe their names can you <clears throat> describe their characteristics yeah, so yeah, that's that's very important point. Um, it's a um, basically writes that in Gulag, people mostly uh, kept uh, groups according to their nationality, their religion, uh, the place where they came from. Um, so he he writes about some um, uh, like religious people, Christians, about people from. Uh, uh, the Catholic uh, uh, believers from uh, Baltic countries uh, about um, Ukrainians uh, who, who stick together uh, so there was, this was a way of surviving so people were organizing according to, to, the, to, to their um, like things that were in common and the, the Jews were the same so Jews were uh, uh, um, were also um, Kind of um, making those groups and helping each other. Um, one of the things that Tsipergerson uh, mentioned when he was brought to the Workuta prison camp, um, so Workuta was kind of isolated in the far north, so they didn't have much news and didn't have many people there. So each time when new people were arriving there, it was uh, at that time it was kind of um, the occasion for uh, to learn new stuff so the next day people start coming there uh, to look for 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 members of their kind of social or, or religious or national gr groups and um, uh, so so there came uh, a, a Jewish prisoner um, whose name was David Cohen and he was looking for for Jewish prisoners who came in this uh, uh, in this transfer so he found Svi and he uh, welcomed him and uh, offered him some help, some food if he needed it. And for Svi, it was very important because he knew that some uh, Jewish members of the Jewish community of the camps they were taking care of each other. 
It was kind of the, his experience. And he also mentioned, uh, he, I mean, the president did the same. He he offered his help and advice to, to many of the Jewish prisoners. And he was able to ask for them, uh, like medical help or uh, even uh, to to talk to the authorities to to um, to relieve their like problem situation. So so it was very important to uh, to make to have some friends in the in the in the gulag in the in, in the uh, camp because it, it was able to, uh, to to not to feel I mean people were not feeling alone and they were uh, they were able to survive better the the harsh reality of the gulag camps so that was an important part of his uh, life there and also as I mentioned he. He had some friends that he was speaking Hebrew with, so there were regular meetings. They were working together uh, outside. They call it uh, Yudan Street. So it was in winter. Uh, so there was a pass there. They were getting out. They were working back and forth there and speaking Hebrew. And they call it like a Yudan Street. <laughs> Interesting. But it was also part of the community. That's how people were there. And it's not only Jewish. Again, he mentions. Uh, uh, the <clears throat> Catholics, the Ukrainians, and uh, other uh, other groups there. Uh, also, he, he also mentioned there were some um, foreign prisoners there. He mentioned some Americans, uh, uh, the prisoners from Germany, uh, uh, from other European countries. They were also kind of together. So it was uh, their means of survival. What? new insights does this book teach us about Soviet Jewish history? What would scholars, specialists, and students in Soviet Jewish history be surprised to learn from this book? Um, so that's a first-hand account. I mean, that's the raw material that um, uh, specialists, historians, they may use uh, in their work. Um, I, I, I don't think I can uh, make any general sta statements on this. I'm not a historian. But this is the first kind of count, and um, that's um, the real uh, stuff, the real things that happened, how it was, and uh, there were not much uh, such accounts in the literature, especially for the for the Jewish uh, part of the story. Uh, and I think it's a very important historical document. Why do the stories of Jewish gulag survivors receive less attention than Jewish concentration camp survivors? What can be done to rectify this? Um, I think it's a, it's a Soviet authorities. They didn't uh, allow publishing anything. So it was all quiet and fine and nice in Russia. And even the foreigners who came to visit uh, like Moscow or Leningrad at that time, they were, they were shown only nice things. So so there was not, uh, not much communication which was getting outside. The, <clears throat> the concentration, the Nazi concentration camps, they uh, became well known after uh, the Western uh, armies. They, they basically uh, liberated them. So all the information came outside. Um, from Russia's side, there was no, not much information. It was all, uh, even even about the Jewish concentration camps. I mean, there was some rumors, some information, but not much. Uh, Russia didn't want, uh, or Soviet authorities didn't want to publicize the Jewish part of the war the Holocaust and so on. It was kind of, uh, it wasn't uh, forbidden, but it was not uh, promoted. It was not uh, made public, uh, all this knowledge. And the Gulag is the same, even less. I mean, uh, the, the suffering of 
Gulag prisoners. It was a taboo. I mean, um, it started with basically with Solzhenitsyn when his archipelago Gulag was published outside. That's uh, where it aroused the public attention to this issue. But it was much later, so it was already history at that time. What does this memoir teach us about resilience? How can this memoir help victims of deep suffering in other circumstances and other contexts cope with their own personal trauma and tragedies? Okay, that's uh, the question that basically Solzhenitsyn writes a a lot about it. Uh, Basically, uh, Solzhenitsyn tells that uh, people had to have their uh, moral uh, uh, kind of... uh, uh, code inside and that helped uh, helps to survive because uh, from what sorry it's not uh, it's general the people that uh, that started to eat all the junk food uh, and look for like uh, into the garbage bins so they they were the first to die so the people who who uh, held their sanity and their code of uh, conduct even though it was very difficult they were more stronger. I think Sipriakerson also, he didn't say it exactly like in these words, but but I think the, one can understand that that basically was also his uh, opinion, <clears throat> even though he didn't know Solzhenitsyn I mean, uh, at all. I mean, and he wasn't in any way connected to him. So he wrote his memoirs um, uh, long before Solzhenitsyn and without any knowledge of other publications on this subject. So only from his own experience. But um, uh, he always had his moral kind of um, uh, moral uh, 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 stuff inside that helped him to survive, and and he tried to also convince others that that's what um, what people should do for survival. For instance, um, I remember it was one of the prisoners <coughs> who uh, he 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 calls him. It was I think I think his name. Uh, was uh, Rottenberg. He called him uh, the district secretary. So he used to be a party uh, functioner, uh, very well uh, set in, uh, in Russia, but he was Jewish and he was uh, arrested during the anti-Semitic campaign. But he was very devoted to the party and he thought it was a mistake. I mean, most of the people thought that uh, other people, they are guilty and I am innocent. Most of uh, political prisoners maybe thought, thought this kind of thing because they knew that they're innocent, but others they didn't know. So they thought maybe others are guilty, but I'm innocent. So for him, it was very, he felt very <clears throat> strong the injustice that was done to him because he, he had very very high position. <laughs> now he, he was one of the Gulag prisoners. So he was obvious and he was um, kind of uh, a guy who who was in his uh, like 60s and he he was um, uh, uh, he was he didn't have to work but he, uh, he always was going and complaining to every to everyone um, how uh, how unfortunate he was and uh, the justice wasn't done to him and he was suffering and Cipriano writes that it was it wasn't common uh, he 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 says that people should suffer quietly I mean. If you have to suffer, so do it quietly. Don't uh, go outside and tell your stories to other prisoners who are uh, also unfortunate as as, as 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 you are. But they are quiet. I mean, they are suffering and quiet, and they and they are surviving. But 
but this person he was complaining all the time and he was very sick and so on so so this kind of behavior Pedersen uh, 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 didn't like for instance like uh, as a moral code of conduct in the in the camp so he thinks that people should uh, take their uh, uh, whatever punishment whatever uh, life gives them to and to 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 struggle with it, but 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 to do it in a quiet way, not to to go outside and to complain to everybody about his suffering. Can you say more about Tzvi's Hebrew writing? What else did he write in Hebrew? What were the themes in these writings? Yeah, so so I think the Hebrew writing was the most important uh, part of his life. Uh, I think it may be even more important than his. Um, uh, other things like his work, his family, and so on. So it was like the uh, the main things that he he his his goal in life was to, to to he was he was a natural writer. I mean that was way of living for him. Um, he wasn't able to make any money from his writing, so he had to work, and he was very successful with his work. But his heart was in in writing and in writing only in Hebrew. He didn't he never wrote in any other language. So his writing was his way of life basically so his hebrew was excellent i mean he he didn't use um, the uh, uh, the typing machine i mean uh, so he everything he wrote was by hand and his hebrew was like calligraphic i mean he wrote very dense and very clear so <clears throat> when people read uh, his uh, handwriting right now his archive is in tel aviv university so when you look at those pages it's amazing how he was able to to write it with, without much corrections and um, um and it's it all just went into into publications without without much uh, editing so he was very clear concise in his hebrew and it, it's amazing i mean really amazing because he he since he was doing everything um, uh, like uh, uh, secretly he wasn't able to consult to anyone he he just did everything by himself so it, it was great. So he, he, uh, he again, as, as I say, his main topic was the life of Jews in um, in uh, Russia uh, after revolution in the Soviet Union, basically. How the way of life changed, uh, how the Jews suffered from uh, from Russian authorities, um, uh, how they were persecuted for their religious views. And it's all very kind of comes very natural. Very, he has lots of stories. He has a book of stories, and uh, many, many, many uh, interesting uh, cases there. About so it's basically it's it's part of the um, like historical as you asked before historical evidence about the life of Jews in Russia. So I think you can find it in his stories and his books of Tsipregerson. So that it was very that, that topic was very important to him. Can you t- tell us about Svi's professional work in coal enrichment? Yes. So so again, uh, he was very talented, and he became um, uh, the uh, leading expert in this area in uh, Russia. Russia at that time, coal mining was one of the main main industries there. So they had uh, to make special equipment, special methods. So Tsvi Pregerson was uh, uh, very active. So he was um, teaching students. He was writing textbooks, which were heavily used for education of uh, mining engineers. 
And he had many, many patents uh, in this area. So he was granted uh, like inventions for improving the methods of coal enrichment, new machines, new methods. So he was very, very successful in that. He, uh, since he was Jewish, I mean, he wasn't promoted very much, but uh, he was very respected. So, uh, for instance, uh, <laughs> when he was brought to the Karaganda uh, Gulag camp, uh, he met with the uh, with the manager of the of the coal Capitalnia coal mine, and it happened to be that this manager was his former student. And uh, in his cabinet, he has he had a few books of Cipegers, and so so that, that, <laughs> that was very very funny. I mean, he promised to help Cipegers, but then he was kind of promoted to some other place, so Cipegers never saw him again. But but to find. Uh, uh, his students in such a situation, it was very, very amazing. So yeah, so so the professional life was very important to him and it supported him. Uh, and um, uh, you know what, there is a curiosity, maybe I can uh, tell about it. So so when he died, when he died, uh, he was actually cremated in Moscow. And later, um, I mean, uh, his remains were transferred to Israel and were buried in Israel um, uh, in, the, in the kibbutz cemetery. So, and many people came from the university where he worked. So he was, since he was well known, so they brought many flowers uh, and uh, all kinds of things there. And there were, there were some speeches there about him, how, how successful um, uh, scientist he was and his students and so on. <clears throat> so that was the main thing. I mean, when he, when he was, um, uh, when he died. So people are talking about his professional achievements, but then, after it was over, there were some some former friends, some former Gulag prisoners there who who knew him from Gulag. So they, uh, one of them, uh, he commanded like the people who lived there, let's collect all the flowers, and let's go to the to the uh, uh, grave of uh, Solomon Michels. As I mentioned before, Solomon Michels, he was um, the uh, uh, the chairman of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, and he was murdered by Stalin. He was a very famous uh, actor and respected, very respected Jewish person. So there was a, a grave of him in this cemetery. So they took all the flowers and put on he, on the grave of Solomon Mikhoels, just to to show that um, the Jewish part was also very important in Tsipras's life. And uh, the uh, former co-workers of Tsipras and from the universities, they didn't know anything about it. So when they found out they are going uh, like with, with the crowd to, to Solomon Mikhail's grave, they all just all left and all the Jews basically arrived there. So it was very, very, um, very interesting. And one of his friends um, uh, uh, at his funeral uh, uh, procedure, he, he, he told that the Pregerson enriched not only the coal, but he enriched um, uh, people's, people's souls. So it was a very good kind of phrase for Tsipregerson, that he was uh, like a very warm uh, Jewish person. Sounds like a real tzaddik. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so maybe maybe I should mention also that uh, Tsipregerson got uh, recognition in Israel. <clears throat> so, so all of his works were uh, smuggled to Israel. Um, his one of his books was published in Israel during his uh, life. So this. Um, novel um, uh, when the menorah fades 
uh, it was published in um, uh, 1966 and uh, it was brought back to Russia. So the president was able to hold um, uh, this book in his hands uh, uh, while he was still alive. And all the rest of his books were published first in Hebrew and then translated to Russian because lots of Russian audience, I mean, uh, like him as a writer. And um, uh, this book, the um, uh, these memoirs, uh, Gulag memoirs, it's the second book, which is an English translation. The first was When the Menor Fades. And also in his recognition for his literary achievement in Israel, uh, one of the streets is in Tel Aviv is named after him. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I wanted to convey my utmost appreciation and gratitude to you for this time together in dialogue and conversation. Would you like to share anything about work that you've been doing since this book was completed? Um, my next project probably would be to, to translate the short stories of Zwipregerson, which I think are also very important uh, for English audience to, uh, to, to, to get acquainted with. So that will probably be my next uh, project related to Zwipregerson. And uh, in, 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 so we have like a family foundation, we call it Zwipregerson Foundation. We try to, uh, to promote um, his, um, uh, his works in Israel. In, uh, um, and, uh, now, I mean, with the publication of the English books also uh, in um, uh, USA and uh, all over the world. So, so hopefully, the Pregerson will uh, uh, will take the proper place in the um, in the uh, Hebrew literature. Thank you. As thank we, you very much. As we end you, today, it, it, yeah. I just I, wanted to con convey my appreciation to you, Alex, for this wonderful conversation. I'm truly thankful for everything I learned and for everything you taught us. And I'm also so thankful for the life that your grandfather Tzvi lived. We are all blessed that such a person lived on this earth. Yeah, thank you very much, Harry, and I enjoyed talking to you. And thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I have been in dialogue today with Alex Lahav. He is the grandson of Tzvi Pregerson whose memoir we have been discussing today. Alex is currently the chairman of the Tzvi Pregerson Foundation and currently works part-time in the Nanotechnology Center of Bar-Ilan University in Israel. We have been discussing the book that he has edited and translated by his grandfather, his grandfather's very memoir. Memoirs of a Jewish Prisoner of the Gulag, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press, 2022. Thank you.